Guardian Unlimited. Hello. Hello, I'm Brian Logan. And I'm Lucy Porter. And welcome to today's Heckle, broadcast to you from the Guardian's kitchen table. Lucy, pass me some coffee, will you? I'll plunge right now. Um, today we're bringing you an extended Heckle, a half-hour round-up show where we'll be looking at what's been good and what's been not quite so good on this, the first week of the Edinburgh Festival. We'll have a walk round the Andy Warhol exhibition with Simon Munnery and we'll have a look at the free fringe. But first, let's introduce to you our kitchen table guests. Joining us is the Guardian's very own Lynn Gardner. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Would you like some coffee? Oh, that'd be lovely. Excellent. We also have with us comedian Marcus Brigstock. What can I tempt you with, Marcus? Uh, you're very kind. I've got a glass of water here and that's all I need. Thanks. So it's certainly been a busy week for me as well as podcasting daily. I'm seeing about five shows a day. But Lynn, I know that's a mere bagatelle next to your schedule. How many shows have you been seeing? Probably about six or seven. Any particular highlights recently? Yeah, the uh, two I'd really go for are a show called Mile End, which is on at the Pleasance Dome. And the other one is The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, and right. that's at Underbelly. I think we're going to hear a clip from Devil in the Deep Blue Sea later. How's about you, Marcus? So I've seen a few good things. I went to see The End of Everything by a theatre company that I've followed the shows they've done over the last three years, and they're absolutely brilliant, and uh, I found it every bit as exciting as the last two pieces they've done. So that was great. And I've seen Waiting for Alice, which has got my flatmate in it. Um, in fact, I've seen it twice because Andre Vincent and Phil Jupiter alternate roles as Tweedles, Dumb and D. And it's extremely good. Very enjoyable. I'm very pleased to hear this. I'm seeing it at 6.15 today. Oh, good. Well, I hope you enjoy. No, I'm looking forward to it. So, Lucy, how's your first week been? Been lovely, thank you. I have been to see Sister Psycho, which I very much liked, which is a musical about a robotic killer nun, and I... Excuse me? Yeah, it's quite good, A yeah. musical about a... Robotic killer nun. Excellent. Not another one. One of those, <laughs> the old robotic killer nun uh, genre. Look at us, then. Between us, I'd say we've probably seen about 0.03 of the entire film. <laughs> exactly. Well done, us. Well. Do you want milk in your coffee? The heck The Edinburgh Festival can be an expensive business for punters and for performers alike, with tickets costing in the region of £12 for an hour's show. So unless you're a big name, it can be hard to draw in the crowds as punters look for shows they can bank on. However, in the shape of the free fringe, there is a solution, as Ben Walker went to find out. You're all very welcome. Have you had a good... Has anyone seen anything terrible so far? Not yet. Not yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Your team's been come through this afternoon. <laughs> anyone seen anything brilliant? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Slightly less possibility of that happening this afternoon. <laughs> uh, I'm Kim McAlsop. I'm Derek Johnson. Uh, we've got a show with PBH's Free Fringe called The Sunshine Variety Couch. It's on at 5 to 5 every day. The Free Fringe gives us a freedom. I mean, we simply don't have the money or the profile, really, to try and go for one of the bigger venues. And also, runs I, and I think that the Free Fringe audiences are a lot more likely and more willing to buy into newer ideas yeah. when they're sitting through a show that they haven't paid for. It's the way forward, absolutely. The Free Fringe may not enjoy the same profile and press exposure as the Main Fringe, but the movement and the buzz around it has been growing year on year, to the extent that this year there are over 150 free shows. I went to meet the man behind the original Free Fringe. Peter Buckley-Hill, you are the founding father of the Free Fringe in its present form. Can you explain how it started? It started in um, 1995 by my realising that an unknown act at the Fringe could not possibly hope to achieve anything if they charged the same price as known acts and yet most of the venues were 
pretty much operating a policy whereby that happened. So the obvious thing to do was to make gigs free. That make it easier for people to come, easier for people to discover and learn more about the acts, and generally do uh, a service to both acts and public alike. <laughs> I was sharing a flat with an Australian guy last year during the Edinburgh Festival, right? There was four Scottish guys, one Australian guy, right? The four Scottish guys got up at two o'clock in the afternoon with hangovers, right? The Australian boy been up since seven o'clock in the morning, been for a run, made three new friends and organised a trip to fucking Thailand, right? <laughs> and done that in life yet, do you know what I mean? Kept on saying things like, let's go to the park, we're going, we've got a fucking park, we the dark. <laughs> I asked Fringe regulars Justin Edwards, the man behind Jeremy Lyon, and Robin Ince how much it costs to bring a show up to the festival. I suppose on average about, Justin, would you say ten grand probably about, for a show? About that. I mean, so you are, you are in that perverse situation of being on stage, paying, think of it as three or four hundred pounds a night, personally, to do your show, and people are paying ten quid each to come and see it as well. So it's this kind of black hole which just sucks everybody's money out. I think when I first came up to the Fringe, I could go and see five shows, and it didn't cost me that much money. And also, yeah. you could see comics really mucking about and 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 see lots of kind of experimentation. Um, now the terror in everyone's eyes because you're if you're spending ten thousand um, pounds or, or more, be, yeah. uh, and at the same time the, the because the audience are spending you know twelve pounds, fourteen pounds, whatever to come in, it means that you have this enormous pressure to make sure that your show is big and glitzy and, and yeah, very exciting and and doing all those things so I think that's the biggest pity and probably why something like the free fringe is a great idea is, is that it does allow for experimentation it allows new acts to come up here without an enormous uh, risk and I think that's the great again the, the, the what I like about the free fringe if I ever came back to Edinburgh then I would do the free fringe an emergency situation has been reported staff are requested to take no action that's how every Monday morning starts for me here at Corputech the business solutions company where I am employed to do a job with no proper description. It's not so much a fire drill as it is a fire drill drill. It's just there to make sure everyone's paying attention. Do nothing. Do nothing, Martin. That's how Monday morning always starts. And so that's what I do. I do nothing. Ooh, it's an email. <laughs> it's a free fringe. I've got no sound effects. I've got nothing. Everything myself. It's an email. I had to change it back to uh, after I got into trouble for um, hacking the computer and changing it to. <laughs> it's frowned upon, but it's one of many tiny, pointless acts of subversion with which I try to brighten up my day here at Computech. I'm Martin White. I mean, I'm only on the fourth day of doing my free fringe show, but the audiences I've had in so far have been very friendly and very warm in comparison to some paid gigs I've done in the past where people have spent, you know, they'll have spent £10 or something on a gig and their expectations are a lot higher. At the end of the day, I'd rather do a show and not get any money than do a show and lose thousands of pounds, which is what every other comedian seems to do on the Fringe every year. Nobody really seems to make any money out of doing it. I'm doing it for, for its own sake. I'm doing it for fun. And if people come to see it, then that's fantastic. Robin Ince. From the, the people I know who are doing it this year, there is a certain glee and excitement and that yeah. different pressure that when, when you walk out and maybe it turns out you haven't sold that many tickets, I can see that there are some performers that kind of look and almost uh, they're counting while they're saying their hellos yeah. going, oh, oh God, God, that means I've lost another £1,000 tonight. Yeah. Whereas it, with that thing, you know, all the, at the end of the free friends, they, they empty their bucket and go, you know, yeah. save for the uh, Siberian coins. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, over £4.20 here. Hey, drinks. Now, Lucy, Marcus, would you ever consider performing for free on the Fringe? Not if hell froze over. <laughs> nope. 
Absolutely not. Uh, this is terribly arrogant, I'm afraid, but I'm a long way beyond doing that. However, I do think that fringe tickets are way, way, way mm. too expensive. To see most comics on an undressed stage with one microphone with a theme that loosely they came up with in July and <laughs> completed on the train on the way here, it ain't worth 15 quid. Not even close. It's not worth a tenner, to be honest. Well, so, think, I mean, that's what you know, you'd know. you pay to get into the comedy store in London or Manchester and you get four acts and a compare and mm-hmm. you know it's a proper night out whereas for an hour exactly. so are you unprofessional enough to perform for free I mean I think if you wanted to do something experimental I think it's true like what I think it was Robin who said that you know it used to be that you'd see comedians mucking about and doing something a bit fun so yeah if you wanted to do yeah. like a little sketch because like, I you know I have aspirations to act and things like that and I wouldn't expect people to pay a huge amount of money to see that because mm-hmm. I would be you know I'm not trained or anything so like doing a little sketch or something I might think about doing that on the free fringe but I do agree I think the problem with the free fringe is that if people haven't paid any money to see you, then their expectations are naturally lower. I think that, you know, it's nice if people have paid something, and I, and I do expect to be paid because, you know, I'm a professional comedian. You feel sort of embarrassed the amount of money that you're charging because you think people must think you're coining it in, but you're really not because there is this black That's a great mystery about Edinburgh. Well, how have we got to a situation where performers have to decide between risking losing tens of thousands of pounds mm. or agreeing to not make anything? It doesn't seem a very attractive choice. It's insane. I mean, and, and everybody denies that they're making money, so the promoters somebody's, say they're not. Somebody's getting rich. Somebody's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, well, Edinburgh, uh, the city does well out of it. Certain institutions within the city do very well out of the festival. The university does well and the council do extremely well. In fact, I think they're pushing the fee for licensing on all the venues up by around 300% over the next few years. So, you know, there are lots of people getting rich and there are plenty of us getting rich from it. I know lots of people who, who make, you know, I don't know, Ten thousand pounds from the fringe. Thing is, I mean, you don't, you know, I mean, I make money out of my show, but it's not what I could make in a normal month in London. You know, I would be much better off doing a normal month of gigs mm. around the country. But then, why do you do it, Lucy? Well, because I love it, you know. And yeah, it and well, it generates for me. It is financially worthwhile because even though I don't make as much money at the fringe as one would like, and also, you know, I have got a set and things because I do feel like you've got to give people some sort of value for money. They've got to yeah. see the money on stage, but um, but it generates a new show that I can then tour you know, in the autumn or the spring. So actually it's, you know, it's worth it. I hope I I didn't sound sneery when I was talking about the free fringe. It is a a fantastic thing. And um, I don't think if it's any sort of political uh, movement, you know, it it should be free sort of thing. Uh, That doesn't appeal to me. I don't see the the merit in that at all. But if it's a leg up for people, fantastic. And I know lots of people that, myself included, that did do show. I did shows for Peter Buckley Hill in my first Mm -hmm. couple of years and was just glad of the stage time, you know. I mean, there are some amazing shows on at the Free Fringe, actually. There are things that I'd wholeheartedly recommend people going to. I mean, quite big names, really, like, you know, John Gordillo, I suppose, is the biggest. Mm. You know, Josie Chris, Long's doing some, isn't she, she's this year? She's doing some stuff yeah. and Pappy's Fun Club mm. and Chris McCausland. And, yeah, so it's definitely worth going to stuff in the Free Fringe. So, Marcus, what are you up to this year at the Fringe? Well, I'm doing two shows. I'm doing a daily topical show where we get up first thing and read the papers and then myself and some guest comedians go out and do comedy on that day's news, which is very exciting because you never quite know what's going to happen. And I'm That's the early edition. That's the, the early Adderbelly. edition yeah, at the Adderbelly in A Big Purple Cow. <laughs> the delicious irony of performing a show in a cow during a foot and mouth outbreak <laughs> is wonderful. And I'm also doing a stand-up show, which I'm really excited about because... I don't know what's going to be in it yet. <laughs> it's still uh, being written. As it's we still speak. being written and and worked out, and uh, yeah, so that should be fun. It's a, a new theme I, I've come up with: is uh, your time is up, 
and it's sort of about blowing the whistle on old institutions that should be pulled to the side of the boating lake to make room for the rest of us. (laughs) Well, the three Abrahamic faiths... um, Mm -hmm conservatism in all its forms uh, <laughs> all manner of things uh, america yeah you know any lighter ones like you know knitting not yet <laughs> i'm working on those hard, that's what i need light stuff. and shade that's the thing <laughs> Just all shade. Mm. now one of the big events of the edinburgh festival this year is the andy warhol exhibition at the royal scottish academy it's a big old collection of some of his most important works along with a smattering of little known gems we sent our own little gem andrew dixon down to see it along with comedian simon munnery i'm standing in front of a wall on which are mounted two one two three four five pictures, in fact all those portraits are double, two for the price of one I suppose, it's a, it's a basic capitalist uh, economic sales technique I think. I like the, the soup cans famously I don't know, was he sponsored by Camry's Soup? We don't know. You do art yourself don't you? You paint and... We, uh, I have done paintings, yes, at the Arthur Smith Art Gallery. Is there a frustrated artist kind of trying to break out of you? No, no, just a not very good one <laughs> and he, he succeeded, he's got out Did you see my Damien Hirst joke? The words Damien and Hurst cut up in a, in a glass box. Ha 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 ha. Is that art? Is that art? Even if you're asking that question, it's, it's too late. <laughs> is it too late? I was going to ask you is that it, question. Is it, it art? Is it art? Well, that's, that's that, what is art. It's what someone points at and says, is it art to? Of, no, some, if one person thinks it's art, it's art. Then surely. What is art? It is art. Is it what art? It's not art, art, or I like the room. There's a room with, uh, full of big healing balloons. I was going to suggest we walk through we'll there, actually. Yeah, totally. cannot be funny. Yes, I point to quite a lot well, like Banksy stuff is funny. I imagine also some well, Andy Warhol stuff must have been funny just from the shock element, like the, uh, we are on the other wall, I can see a uh, sort of wallpaper made of pink cow heads. You know, when you first saw that, when you first saw pink cow heads, you probably would have laughed. And then as time passes and it becomes overly familiar, like a joke's not funny anymore, it becomes, becomes more serious. I mean, it's more extreme than comedy in some ways, isn't it? You've been told that it's art, but it's funny. What are you meant to do? Are you meant to laugh? Are you meant to look at it seriously? I imagine you'd have laughed. In the other wall, we can see repent and sin no more. Again, double. So something's worth saying. It's worth saying twice. Repent and sin no more. Perhaps it's just an age memoir for himself. I wonder what he, whether he looked at his own art much or just got it made and got on with it. Obviously, stand-up comedians, there must be a lot of hard work involved, but it's a bit like that. That's in, the myth, in, yeah. in, a, in a bigger way, you bring all the kind of cuttings and the bits of your life and you turn them into a, into a show. A bit. It's a solid goal. Yes, you do, I suppose. Well, what else have you got? What, someone, said, we, we, someone at a festival, a literary festival, said, why do you think anyone's interested in your life after, after a gig? I said, that's not how I look at it. So I say, the interesting thing is, what we sh- laughed with something you share. It's not I come from a position that my life is inherently interesting, but there are bits in it which I've found from experience people laugh at. And if, in fact, the fact that people laugh shows that there's some connection between us, me, and the, the performing arts. People always review the performer as well, so as if the show was important. Whereas, in fact, much more interesting is the audience. Like the fact that a bloke stands on a stage and chats into a microphone isn't that remarkable. What is remarkable is that there's 150 people sitting mute watching him. And I suppose the same, you could say the same for art. What, it isn't so much the, the painting themselves, not a lot of effort's gone into them, you know, it's not spent years and years painting them, they've been mass-produced, but that the people are looking at it. 
Are we passing through the skulls? Death is the reason for art. What marks will you leave behind? Uh, OK, Simon, we're still in the gift shop, and of course the Guardian's in... generosity munificence knows no bounds. Right. What can we buy you? What are your eye We're surrounded by tea towels, there's Campbell's soup bags, there's books. Yeah. The Guardian's going to buy me a gift. A small one. Oh, what's your budget, the Guardian? Pretty small. Uh, do you want to put a number to it? No, pretty small. Oh, well, uh, I'd like nothing. Thanks. Now, I mean, what's interesting about the shop is it is indistinguishable from, from the gallery, except uh, it's all much closer together and smaller. So, Lynn, you've seen the Warhol exhibition. Is it I have, and it's fabulous. It's absolutely wonderful. Mm. I mean, what I really loved about it is the playfulness of it. Watching people in these galleries, they're quite clearly actually having a lot of fun and not just when they're playing with silver helium pillows or um, clouds, I think they're supposed to be. In fact, there's a lovely little notice uh, just as you walk in there which says, uh, please touch the art gently, which is such a nice idea here uh, that that's the case. But the whole thing feels very playful and perhaps in some ways that's because it also feels very familiar. This guy was 40 years ahead of his time. He just understood branding so well and he also understood celebrity. You know, if you look at those pictures of Jack Kennedy. They're just extraordinary. Um, You feel as though actually this is work that you know intimately, even though I'd certainly never really seen any of those artworks, you know, there where I could touch them, Uh if only gently. I like that idea. I might put a sign up at my show saying, please touch the artist gently. (laughs) (laughs) Because have people been touching you roughly up to this point? Very, very roughly sometimes, yeah. (laughs) But I might go to the Warhol. That sounds good. I've never really liked what I've seen of his stuff, but you've made it sound very appealing. Well, I wouldn't have counted myself as a fan, but I so enjoyed it. It hasn't staled through repeated exposures. No, in a strange way, I think that's what's interesting about it. I think it's the fact that you think you know it and you do know it, but you don't quite know it the way you think that you do, is part of actually what makes it seem really fresh. That's the point Jonathan Jones made in his Guardian reviews. He thought the show was the best thing ever, but he said precisely that you think he's actually a quite clinical, cynical, interested in surfaces, but actually come out thinking that the man had a heart. You never find out, you never knew before that Warhol actually had a big heart. So when Simon Munry talks about the overlap between comedy and art, is there an overlap? Can comedians be artists? Can artists be comedians? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it is, isn't it? I mean, art, you know, if you talk about paintings, it's uh, expressing an idea. That's exactly what a comedian is seeking to do, trying to be understood or at least have a piece of work that you've done interpreted in a way that pleases or challenges or provokes a response. I think it is art. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, are we seriously, for a I moment, hope. even questioning the fact I that am, comedy am, might yeah. not be art. <laughs> of course it let's, is. Let's swap Some review. of it's low art. <laughs> yes. Very, very yes. low art. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. the lowest art gets um, would probably be in the hands of some comedians. <laughs> Obviously, I see a lot of comedy, and I do sometimes wish that they thought of themselves in that way more, because mm. I see a lot of theatre for the other 11 months of the year, and I kind of feel no matter how bad theatre gets, usually there's an effort to express something or a, a coherence of approach, whereas sometimes I feel with comedians they're a bit lazier. Well, we're just servants of gags sometimes, I think. Mm. The gigs that I've often enjoyed most are, in fact, those where people do actually get away completely from the punchline. Yeah, Someone asked me the other day, and I was unable to answer, why is it that comedians acknowledge when a joke hasn't worked? 
we all go, oh, don't know why that didn't work. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> just me uh, then, the yeah, classic. Yeah, just me then. Maybe it's sheer embarrassment. It is, but you'd think if you were that embarrassed, uh, you know, I mean, if you fart somewhere, you just walk away from it. You don't go, oh, I farted. I've, <laughs> I have farted. I'm sorry, everyone, I've farted. I mean, I think people do like coming to comedy because they know that there is a possibility that you will die on your ass, mm. and, you know, and people, there is an element <laughs> of people sitting sort of, Oh, yeah, I mean, but... And it is fascinating when you see, when, you know, when, when one is struggling, that's when the mask falls away, and that's when, you know, you actually see the heart and soul of somebody, mm. isn't it? When you... That's when all the other comedians gather in the back of the room. <laughs> the text message goes round. <laughs> Marcus Brigstock having a really terrible gig. The rumour is we can still fit in at the back. (laughs) Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. He looked frantic. I suppose the point about comedy and art is that clearly the best comic performances are brilliant works of art. Mm. But comedy is quite unique among the art forms in that that what we call visual art or theatre can try and elicit one of a million possible responses. Mm -hmm. And comedy is the only art form that is judged on whether it engenders one specific response, which is laughter. That's why comedy is best. That's why comedy's best. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, say, I, I'm saying that personally. That's why comedy's best for me. You know, I, I act and do lots of other things as well. But if the audience don't laugh, you didn't do your job. And I love the straightforward nature of that. Yeah, but I just like comedians who demand of themselves that they make the audience laugh, but then also say, once I've got them laughing, what do I do with them in that wonderful... Mm. Client <laughs> introduce the Receptive. next act is the most yeah. sensible thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lynn, you alluded to some of the things you'd seen when we started the show. Can you tell us a bit more about Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea? That was one of the shows that you were most enthusiastic about. What it is, is a theatrical cabaret that's set up as though it's set in the 1920s and there's a pianist as though they're providing a kind of silent movie accompaniment. And there is a screen on which uh, various animations take place, but then there's also live action that integrates with the screen. Anyone who's seen the work of people like Fort Beard Fantasy would probably you know, have an idea of what is going on. But it is incredibly well done and very funny because what follows are a series of really rather uh, sinister vignettes. There's twin sisters who have a story about the lodger who moves in and the parents have mysteriously disappeared in what's described as a wishing well accident and are buried in the cemetery in the back bedroom. The lodger arrived without warning at an unsociable hour. Cheap love on his breath. A tatty piece of string that bore a rusty key around his neck and a pencil moustache that was penciled on. <laughs> he was a French man who didn't appear to speak or understand any English or any French. <laughs> You never quite know. The whole thing is kind of shot as though it's kind of a voyeur looking through the rooms, so you never quite know what it is that has happened to the lodger. So the whole thing is enormously witty and very entertaining. It's a bit like Edward Gorey or something like... um, Shock Eddie Peter. Peter, very much like that as well. And what's beautiful about it is the way that it's done. Almost everything is perfect about it. Often in these things, either the live action is quite good, but the animation isn't great or the design is very nice but the acting and the writing isn't so strong and what's fantastic about this is that almost every single element of it is just so 
Well, one of the things that both Lucy and I saw was Tony Lee's Triple X Aggressive Comedy Hypnosis. It's a show where people volunteer to be hypnotised and on stage Tony gets them to perform all sorts of unpleasant activities. Producer Francesca Panetta caught up with some of the hypnotised volunteers immediately after the show. Well, it's only just coming back to me now, but I'm pretty sure... <laughs> looking at one of my mates now and I'm pretty sure I was licking some cream off him and I was doing some dodgy stuff to a chair. I kind of knew when I had to pretend that the pet was my... that I was having sex with my pet, I knew that it was, wasn't real, so I was trying to, like, behave, but you kind of just don't have much control. The only point when I thought, actually, I've had enough now was when the guy next to me called the guy a cook. At that point, I kind of thought, actually, I've had enough. Were you really hypnotised, truly hypnotised? Yeah, there was something really weird about it. Like, it was almost like I was conscious of doing it, but at the same time, like, I couldn't not do it, you know? Like, um, At the time, you kind of felt like I was... I said, I mean, you knew what was happening, but you had no control over it. Like, you just felt it was best to stay on stage. So it's a bit random, and afterwards you just feel a bit skewy, but good fun. Do you feel exploited? Uh, no, not really. I'm a confident guy, and, you know, I had a good night tonight. The things are coming back to me now. I'm sure it was It was all done in jest, so it was a really good night, really good night. Is, is this a good act? I mean, is it, is it fun to watch? Yeah, it was absolutely hilarious. I mean, one of the funniest, I've never laughed harder. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in my life. What was your favourite bit? Oh, the humping of the chairs. You said the, um, the bit where the guy was doing anal to the other guy. Yeah, that was pretty good. Did, was it over the top? Did it go too far? No, no, it could have gone a lot further. It was good. It was good. Could have gone further? Well, he, he, he said it usually goes further, so I'm pretty sure there's probably some more extreme shit that goes on, but it's good. So an enthusiastic response from participants and punters. But Lucy, I gather you, like me, had a slightly more jaundiced perspective. Well, I mean, I have never seen an audience reaction like it to anything. It was people literally falling off their seats, laughing when a man was simulating oral sex on another man. <laughs> Just... That chap in the clip there made the humping of the chairs sound like the trooping of the colour. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> I found it just terrifying. <laughs> I was grimly fascinated for the whole thing. What did you think? Yeah, a certain morbid compulsion, but it was one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had in a theatre. And I came away <laughs> thinking... Uh, well, I, it was really interesting to sit there and wonder, am I just a prude? And then it clicked that Tony Lee was a macho, sexist and cynical man who was making entertainment out of really nasty activities. And occasionally you'd get a flicker of something interesting happened. Somebody under hypnosis would evince some signs of charming eccentricity. Really? And, for example, there was one scene when they were imagining they were in a McDonald's drive through and they had to order. And the guy ordered a, a Dairy Milk McFlurry and he kept insisting on this. This was his order. Now, that was mm. quite lovable. Mm. That gave you just an inkling of how perhaps a hypnotism show might be quite charming. Mm. But Tony Lee had no interest in these human beings on stage who had interesting personalities. He was only interested in having them have sex with each other. Right. And everyone throws their hat in the air and whoops and cheers. Apart from me, who started to sob in the corner. <laughs> I mean, it's such a good booking, though, isn't it? It's been packed and it was going to be a huge hit. I think it's a very. I mean, he's not going to lose 10,000 quid. He's certainly uh, not going to lose 10,000 It's called cool, cool no. X as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. But it's just what you do with those X's and it sort of ram them up people's bums as aggressively as Tony <laughs> Lee does. <laughs> <laughs> Have uh, you ever seen comedy hypnotism? Yeah, yeah, I don't like it. Uh, I sort of 
go, yeah. all right, okay, you've made someone be foolish. I mean, Actually, no, I'm t- I tell you, I did see Paul McKenna when I was a teenager. You know, he was sort of getting people to pretend to be washing machines or, you know, eat an onion when it was actually an apple and stuff. It was hilarious. Do comedians or performers have any responsibility in the way they treat their audience? There's always a slight edge of, like, I mean, I try if I pick on, or, or not pick on, you see, the, the very language is loaded, but if I speak to people in the audience, you know, you try not to be mean but there is a certain edge to it I think with comedy that people like seeing people getting a, a ribbing of some description even if it's gentle. But it can work of course the other way because when I saw Will Adamsdale's Human Computer the person who he chose from the audience to operate kind of the arrow on his computer which is an absolutely integral part of the show unfortunately was absolute rubbish at it and almost scuppered the entire thing you know, oh, really? so, yeah. 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 Well, It's a dangerous game to yeah. play when yeah. You, yeah, when you the Well I did a show uh, many years ago at the Fringe about therapy and counselling and one of the things was to try and get two men to hug without feeling the need to whack each other on the back in a sort mm. of I'll hug you but I'm not gay thing. <laughs> and I got this guy out of the audience and said, hello, what's your name? And he said, Paul. And I said, right, good. And what do you do, Paul? And he said, I'm head of the comedy at the BBC. Uh, it was Paul Jackson. And, uh, I, and I couldn't sit him back down again because once they're up, they're up. It, these things can blow up in your face. <laughs> yes. And at that moment, the entire audience <laughs> winced and clenched buttocks uh, <laughs> as my career seemed to disappear down, <laughs> down a hole. Well, that's it for today's Extended Heckle, presented by me, Brian Logan. And me, Lucy Porter. Uh, a huge thank you to our guests, the lovely Marcus Brigstock and Lynn Gardner. The music's by the Des Moines Riot... The production team is Andy Dixon, Pascal Wise and Jim Anthony. And the shows are produced by Ben Walker and Francesca Panetta. Until Monday, bye-bye. <laughs> Guardian Unlimited.